that colonization, that patriarchy, which took away from matriarchal societies. Um, I think oppression, um, lateral violence. There's so kind of there's so many historical aspects mm-hmm. that uh, systemic racism that's built into all of the systems. Yep. Discrimination. We can go on and on and on. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's there's yep. lots of root uh, causes. Welcome to The Scaries, brought to you by RacerCo. I'm Sky, And I'm Talitha. We are proudly broadcasting from Treaty 4 territory. In each episode, we tackle the alarming, inconceivable, questionable, shocking, and scary statistics relating to, impacting, and intervening with the lives of women and girls worldwide. You'll hear the scary truth, take away tools and tips, and learn about what you can do about it. And really, The Scaries is an opportunity to raise awareness, share resources, and use our voices as women and supporters of women to make some real change. As always, the opinions uh, and the views expressed on this podcast are solely our own, and it's for entertainment purposes only. And specifically in this episode, and as in with many of our episodes, we will be sharing some content that could be triggering to you, so please listen with caution. As straight, cisgender, white, able-bodied settler women, we are very aware of the privilege that we have, and we want to use this platform to spread awareness about the scary reality that women from around the world face in different life situations. Why? Because sometimes nothing is scarier than being a woman. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Did I say welcome? Welcome, <laughs> listeners. <sounds> like, dun, <laughs> dun, <laughs> to another episode of The Scaries. Today, we're sharing about the downright terrifying, scary, scary, scary realities for women in Canada. And we're shining light specifically on the alarming rates of violence against Indigenous women and girls. But we're not just talking about numbers and statistics. Today, we'll also be honored to have a guest who will share her personal experiences with us. Um, so we're super privileged and lucky to have that. Her story sheds light on the harsh realities faced by Indigenous women and girls across the country and kind of what she's been doing, the action she's taking, the healing she's had, and then what we can do as allies. Absolutely. So I know that we say this every single time, but these stories and statistics we will be discussing today may be triggering to some listeners. In particular, our guest shares about uh, sexual abuse as a child and as an adult. So if uh, if you are going to be triggered by that, please prioritize your own well-being and step away. So let's get started. Violence against Indigenous peoples reflects a very dark and traumatic history, specifically in Canada, a history that continues to cast a long shadow over Indigenous families, communities, and the Canadian society as a whole. Indigenous women and girls are at least three times more likely to experience violence than non-Indigenous women and six times more likely to be murdered. On any given day, thousands of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis women and children are living in a emergency shelters to escape abuse. And with on-reserve shelters, they still remain extremely underfunded. Indigenous women and girls are not only more likely to be victims or survivors of crime compared with non-Indigenous women and girls, but they're also at a much higher risk of experiencing specific acts of violence. These include physical assault, sexual assault, and spousal violence. Higher rates of violent victimization among Indigenous women and girls cannot be fully explained by risk factors usually associated with victimization, such as childhood maltreatment, social disorder in one neighborhood, homelessness, drug use, or poor mental health. Even when controlling for these and other risk factors, it is blatantly clear that being Indigenous in itself is a risk factor for violent victimization of Indigenous women. Oh, uh, so just being born and who you are is yeah. just a risk factor. So we will note that this episode is not going to focus on the genocide of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. While related and connected, obviously, that's a separate topic that we're going to get into on its own episode as it uh, carries a lot of weight and is a very dark part of our Canadian history and present. Mm-hmm. So first, let's define what violent victimization means. Violent victimization is defined in a 2018 survey of safety in public and private spaces as a physical assault, so like an attack, a threat of physical harm, or an incident with a weapon present, or a sexual assault, so forced sexual activity, or even just attempted forced sexual activity. 
Experiences of violent victimization carry significant weight, affecting not only the immediate well-being of individuals, but also their long-term social, economic, and emotional outcomes. Yet, shockingly, a substantial portion of these crimes never even make it to the authorities. Shocking. Yeah. Seriously. For Indigenous women, the decision to report such incidences is deeply layered. Historical factors, including the enduring impact of colonialism, have eroded trust in law enforcement and the justice system. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission, or TRC, of Canada's 2015 report highlights these systemic challenges, revealing a fractured relationship between Indigenous women and authorities. We'll talk a little bit more trust about trust again later on with our guest, but really the barriers don't end there. Indigenous women face a myriad of hurdles in seeking help or justice following victimization, from a lack of cultural sensitive resources to physical and inaccessibility of support services the obstacles can seem insurmountable. Moreover, there's a pervasive sense of distrust, like I said, towards law enforcement and concerns about confidentiality within the justice system, as documented by the TRC report. So where does that leave us? Great question. Here are some of the cold, hard truths. In Canada, intimate partner violence stands as the most prevalent form of violent victimization against women. Astonishingly, it accounts for 45% of all violent incidences reported to the police. But behind these statistics lie deeply troubling realities that disproportionately affect Indigenous women and girls. So picture this. Within Indigenous communities, the risk of experiencing family violence at the hands of an intimate partner or family member is alarmingly higher than for non-Indigenous women. The violence they endure isn't just more frequent, it's often more severe, painting a grim portrait of the challenges that they face. Now, consider this. More than six in 10 Indigenous women have faced physical or sexual assault in their lifetime. That's a staggering 63% as reported by Statistics Canada in April 2022. To put this in perspective, about two-thirds of Indigenous women have experienced violent victimization in their lifetime. And remember that many, many, many go unreported, so this is not even the full picture. So, so, so scary. Mm-hmm. These harrowing figures don't exist in isolation. They're deeply rooted in the historical trauma of colonization and ensuing policies that continue to perpetuate violence across generations. For Indigenous women, this trauma often manifests in the normalization of violence within households and communities contributing to a cycle that's hard to break, which again, we'll talk about more later on with our guest. Mm -hmm. The repercussions are profound. Indigenous women who have been who have ever been under the government's legal responsibility are eight in 10 likely to have experienced violent victimization in their lifetime. Childhood experiences of abuse and harsh parenting correlate with a higher prevalence of lifetime violent victimization, painting a stark picture of the intergenerational impact of trauma. Furthermore, Indigenous women are more likely to perceive indicators of social disorder in their neighborhoods and are twice as likely to lack confidence in the police compared to their non-Indigenous counterparts. This lack of trust in law enforcement compounds their challenges in seeking safety and justice. As we grapple with these statistics, it's, it's crucial to remember that each number represents a life, a story, and a struggle for survival. These figures are not just data points. They're harsh realities faced by Indigenous women and girls every single day in the past, today, and sadly, probably in the future. Mm -hmm. We must confront the systematic issues that perpetuate violence against them and work towards a future where they can live free from harm and fear. So now to shed some light on the human side of these statistics, we are super honored to welcome our guest who will share her personal story. This is Patricia Crow. We are very honored to have her. Thank you for being here Thank you. today. And let me just tell you a little bit about Patricia. So Patricia began her advocacy at the local, provincial, and national levels in 2008 as a Saskatchewan Police Commission and Provi- Provincial Partnership Committee on Missing Persons Board member for two terms. This was the first introduction of working with missing persons and directly supporting the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls family gatherings. This advocacy work continued as a regional board member with the Saskatchewan Aboriginal Women's Circle Cooperation and as 
the Saskatchewan representative on the Native Women's Association of Canada, which is one of the resources that we used for this mm-hmm. episode. This led to taking part in the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls get Family Gatherings, Violence Prevention and Community Safety Panels, and attending the second National Roundtable on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. It was during that roundtable that Patricia silently pledged to act for the families of her community's missing and murdered Indigenous women during a solemn ceremony. Continuing her commitment to the local and provincial families, Patricia has participated in Violence Against Indigenous Women and Girls initiatives, facilitated a National Inquiry Open Forum and Department of Justice Family Information Liaison Unit Symposium, and participated in many community walks, vigils, sharing circles with Métis and First Nations missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls families. The provincial family gathering included the Mamawe gathering, meaning being together gives us solace, which was a provincial gathering for families of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit people. And the coming home gathering, La Fille de Madeleine, honoring the lives and legacies of missing and murdered Métis women and girls. Currently, Patricia is focusing on Indigenous economic development, working within Treaty 4 territory, and is the previous co-chair for Saskatchewan Indigenous Economic Development Network and the ex officio board member of the Saskatchewan Economic Development Alliance. You are busy. Man, oh man. Don't, don't forget, I'm an advisor for you guys now. Uh, yeah, yes, she's also an advisor for Raise Her. So, I mean, I, we also Just keep a couple things on the go. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for being here and taking, taking the up, time. Yes, taking yes. your time. Um, so, as we always do with our guests, we are going to fire some rapid fire questions. They never really tend to be rapid fire, but... Uh, They're more to break the ice yes. just to get you ready to... Loose and talk and yes, exactly. Yeah. So they're meant to be light, but yeah. some of them are maybe. We'll see. Yeah. Take a we'll look. So starting off, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? I like to use uh, the words of wisdom that were shared with me uh, with a late elder, and everything is in preparation for what's ahead. Hmm. And I didn't hmm. really understand that uh, in certain parts of my healing journey. Uh, but looking back now, I can see where certain events have led us to where we are. Mm-hmm. And just like today, mm-hmm. sitting here together with you two beautiful women <laughs> um, in your home. Uh, thank you for that. Um, so everything is in preparation for what's ahead. And so sometimes when we're going through challenging, difficult things, we don't see how that's preparing us for mm-hmm. our future life. Wow, that's great. Definitely something to keep in mind. Get tattooed. Yeah, no. Tell me. <laughs> Skylar, I have a lot of tattoos, and Skylar's always like, that's your next tattoo. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> or maybe it's mine. Yeah, maybe it's yours. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, so next question is, if you could grant one gift to women, all women, what would that be? Uh, the gift of fearlessness. Mm. And so this was something that I lived in a lot of fear growing up for various reasons. Uh, fear of the dark, fear of being alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it led to sometimes uh, not good choices in relationships. And so my active fearlessness was moving out to Vancouver by myself wow. and wow. taking on a big city, taking on uh, back alleys and all kinds of different adventures, <laughs> right. but uh, giving myself that permission to walk um, without fear mm-hmm. and without fe- fearing that something negative was going to happen to me. And that's a big thing it's coming very from your history and everything, which we'll get into. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's, very powerful yes, and very absolutely. important, I think, especially for all women, as we know, like confidence and connections are kind of the two things that hold us back from um, leadership and taking on those roles and those behaviors. And that directly aligns to what you said. So, yeah, absolutely. So thank you. Okay. Last question. What is your scary? Oh, um, <clears throat> well, that's an easy one for me, unfortunately. Um, it's abuse. And so abuse can take on many forms, uh, can be emotional, physical, mm-hmm. spiritual, uh, sexual. There's so many, it, it encaptures so much. And mm-hmm. so um, that's it. It's it's abuse. Scary. Yep. Yeah. As we go into the rest of our conversation, we just want to preface this conversation by sharing with our audience and our listeners that we have chatted with Patricia about her safety um, and having safety in this conversation and that she's been briefed on the questions that we are about to ask and had the opportunity to turn anything down that she wanted to turn down. So um, we know that this can be triggering um, and will be triggering. So again, please listen with caution. I know that we've already said this, but listen with caution as we go through and thank you for um 
being here and just being willing to share mm-hmm. uh, in your reality with us. So with that, our first question, what are your own experiences with violence and what supports grassroots organizations and community-based programs contributed to your healing and the healing of others in a similar situation? Well, it's uh, going a long ways back. And so my first memories of of violence, uh, at the time I used the word abuse, I was a child. I was, uh, my first memory was eight years old when I was um, sexually touched or fondled. And I didn't understand until I was an adult that that was actually abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, After having two daughters, I attended a, a family wedding and I was sexually assaulted by a relative. And those experiences um, led me to what's available in in the community uh, for women. Um, my experience was quite humbling uh, at the time. And uh, talking to a male police officer in a hallway uh, at 20, you know, four years old, um, led me to realize that um, the processes need to change Mm -hmm. and that we need to come from a a different direction. So those services in terms of grassroots, of course, our first point of contact are going to be those police services. Um, If you're a victim of crime, then victim services um, would be some of your advocates. Then you move into uh, whether it's sexual assault or um, counseling and so and then also mental health. And so at that time, I was going through a lot of depressions, um, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. Mm -hmm. And um, things have changed quite a bit. I remember calling and uh, just pleading that I needed some help. And I had a a baby at home and I was concerned in terms of my well-being, uh, her safety, not in terms of that I would hurt her, Mm -hmm. but just because I didn't feel at the time that I had the capability of, of functioning. Uh, fully and the wait list at that time was eight months wow and I told them I said like honestly I I can be dead yeah soon because I'm very worried of where my my mind is Mm -hmm. at right now Mm -hmm. and I'm very triggered and understanding all of those processes the beautiful thing now is that uh, those services um, are still there um, they've expanded. People are more uh, trauma-informed. Um, and we'll get into it later. But uh, what it did is it opened me up to creating um, Rise Up Against Abuse. Mm-hmm. And so that was based on my own personal experiences with abuse, taking responsibility, looking in terms of what those services are, getting mm-hmm. educated out there in terms of my own healing. And then that opened up to uh, manifesting into different walks and different boards and different work. And so um, it's hard to believe sometimes, but that there are gifts in things. And even though you go through trauma and difficult experiences, uh, realizing that that maybe motivated me to do all of the work that you guys outlined in my bio. Amazing. Yeah. And so if I may ask, um, just digging into, you know, the gaps in the services that you mentioned. So you mentioned an eight month wait, did that speed up for you after you kind of shared how important and how intense, you know, your situation was and how you couldn't wait did nothing. You still had to wait eight months. No. Wow. So I was fortunate. Um, I was living here in Regina. Um, I'm not from Regina. So all of my family, all of my friends were in a different uh, city. And so I drew on the courage that I had at the time as a young mom. And I reached out to one of my family members Mm -hmm. and finally disclosed some of the past history, uh, because that's what abuse does. Yeah leaves you in places of shame and blame and mm-hmm. hurt and pain. And so reaching out to um, a loved one that I trusted and uh, she uh, took such good care of me. And so I came home uh, to my family and I was embraced mm-hmm. and I was mm-hmm. taken care of um, and I was able to navigate through that. Um, and then where kind of what where it led and and this is what i was saying in terms of everything's preparation for what's ahead 
is it led me to um, a traditional path of healing. Mm -hmm. And so the Western way and, and the sexual abuse and the trauma and the circles, they taught me to understand what, what trauma is. Mm -hmm. uh, they taught me in terms of understanding the terminology, right. but it didn't really help me with my healing. Mm -hmm. uh, that came from a different direction. And so one of the pieces of advice that I give individuals is that when you're going through these challenging, difficult uh, trauma experiences is that you seek answers everywhere yeah. and you find what works for you because my path might not work for you mm -hmm. and but explore mm -hmm. delve uh, that's part of that being fearless is um, not limiting yourself and and find the answers that you need mm -hmm. awesome so this next question is pretty broad um and pretty deep and i think um we know when i think our very first episode was about um interpersonal violence against women straight up and we know that's disproportionately uh higher for indigenous women and so what do you believe are some of the root causes causing that disproportionate amount um against indigenous women of violence and abuse well, uh, you, I know that you women have read uh, The Truth and Reconciliation, mm -hmm. Calls to Action. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that process of understanding the history of uh, First Nations and, and Métis, of course, is colonization mm -hmm. and uh, putting individuals onto First Nations that are sometimes remote. A lot of our Métis communities can be remote. You're uh, needed permission. Uh, so the Indian Act uh, was not kind to women, wasn't kind to anybody, mm -hmm. uh, still is in existence. And so that colonization, that patriarchy, which took away from matriarchal societies, um, I think oppression, um, lateral violence, there's so kind of, there's so many historical aspects mm -hmm. that uh, systemic racism that's built into all of the systems, yeah. discrimination, we can go on and on and on. <laughs> there's there's yeah. lots of root uh, causes. Um, but I think that leads to um, intergenerational abuse. Yeah. And as I stated at the beginning, my abusers were family members mm -hmm. and so that that's intergenerational abuse mm -hmm. and as an adult looking back i'm positive that they also went through mm -hmm. abuse and that's when i started realizing that these are our circles and cycles and so how do we stop it how do we mitigate it how do we and i made some difficult decisions in my life um I have two daughters, and I chose to raise them away from everyone mm -hmm. to try and protect them, mm -hmm. uh, to try to raise strong girls, <laughs> strong women. And uh, it's funny how <clears throat> you think that it's just in your family, but what happened is that it, it was in that extended family also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I'm not trying to scare individuals in terms of that there's no escape, but there is. Uh, the challenge, though, is, you know, we make some difficult decisions. And my choice was to raise my daughters away from family. Well, and that's your fearlessness, too. I mean, that's that takes a lot of fearlessness to make that difficult choice because I think so often people rely on their family to raise, I mean, it doesn't takes a village as they say to raise a child. So making that choice is so incredibly fearless. Mm -hmm. uh, I think also that like saying of hurt people, hurt people and that trying to break that, that cycle is mm -hmm. so important. And I mean, obviously what specifically is at play? We hear so much about the intergenerational traumas that exist for, especially specifically for indigenous communities and being aware of, what those truths are and mm -hmm. and then helping to resolve hopefully and, and you know and, and reconcile what what we can do with that so the next thing is kind of leaning into what you currently do with your your work with the economic development and so my question is what economic factors intersect with the issue of violence against indigenous women particularly within indigenous communities mm -hmm. So we already talked about um, the Indian Act and mm -hmm. uh, forcibly keeping First Nations within 
uh, restricted boundaries, mm-hmm. uh, needing permission to leave the reserve at some point, uh, the lack of ability to provide for yourself. Um, it's not like we could be entrepreneurs many moons ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that poverty um, and that access to jobs, that access to education, um I think that keeps a lot of individuals into low income or no income circumstances. And then when they transition into the bigger cities, um, we know, unfortunately, that uh, a lot of social housing is available, which is good, but they're also in very difficult, tough neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're just exposed more Mm -hmm. in terms of maybe violent neighborhoods or other challenges that you yeah. know, in terms of safety. So I think uh, that that poverty, that low income, no income, lack of resources, lack of education, um, it's not that it, again, it's not at all bleak, but at the same point, I think that puts individuals into difficult circumstances and that may also lead to alcoholism, mm-hmm. uh, drug abuse, uh, making some difficult choices. I had uh, a very difficult choice one time when I was younger with my daughter, and um, I've had to reconcile that with myself. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, we're both safe, but it can happen in just like that. Mm-hmm. Just one desperate moment of trying to think that you're doing the right thing, but not quite sure how you're going to do it mm-hmm. and how... Unfortunately, that uh, there are predators out there. Mm-hmm. And when you're vulnerable, it's very difficult to yeah. trust people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that I think a lot of those things are what leads to some of those acts of violence. Our listeners so often hear us condemn the patriarchy. <laughs> and, you know, we have to break down the patriarchy and all of this. But I think that it's because of these, what we, are we learning about these matriarchal systems specifically as, you know, in indigenous, historically indigenous communities were matriarchal. Mm -hmm. Can you shed a little bit of light on what that would look like and what that has looked like and, you know, how the matriarchs shape society and shape communities versus, I mean, obviously what we know patriarchy looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, we're in this period of reclamation. Yeah. And so, as we're reconciling that past, um, even with ourselves, with our communities, mm-hmm. it's also understanding who we are as Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And so when our language, our culture, our traditions, all of that's taken or goes underground. And so that is rising. Um, it's coming to that surface. And people, uh, individuals, uh, male and female, are reclaiming who they are in terms of their identity, their roles, their responsibilities. And um, thankfully, we have old ones, we have ancient ones, we have elders, um, we have um, traditional teachings. And so traditionally, those leaders, um, um, a lot of times it would be the families. And Mm -hmm. so there would be one woman that would represent the families. And those families would come together and have discussion in terms of whatever was facing the community. Um, also, from a medicine perspective, there's medicine people who work with plants, herbs, um, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> there was a lot more respect in terms of survival in, you know, these lands. And what happened with colonization and, and coming in with that patriarchal worldview is that it diminished the woman. Um, there's some historical references in terms of how they um, refer to women. Um, We don't use that term anymore. Um, But what they did in that that process was they removed the decision-making, the respect, the sacredness of that woman, but also sexualized that woman. Mm -hmm. And so... Right now, we're still seeing the long-term effects of that, even in 2024. Um, 
But as I said, we, we're, we're rising. And mm-hmm. as we go through our processes of healing, traditional healing, as we go through our traditional names, we understand who we are. We also understand our responsibilities as mothers, as grandmothers, um, aunties, whatever those circles are. Yeah, thank you. I think that's really mm-hmm. important to understand and to hear um, why it's this this system. It's not that it's men. It's just that it's this patriarchal system of that, you know, this hierarchical and like there can only be one kind of view and diminishing women's experiences and all of that that uh, truly keep continuing on these cycles of violence, whether it's in an Indigenous community or kind of the the world at large. So thank you for sharing that. Okay, so getting a little bit um, deeper into um, abuse and taking it further out, um, in your experience, how has the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit individuals been addressed within the communities that you work in? Um, We heard a little bit uh, about it in the bio. Mm -hmm. And so the biggest challenge is looking at the supports and programs specifically for um, families that are going through violence. Now, many moons ago, there used to be some supports and now they've eliminated a lot of that. Really? Yep. And so. Why? This is very backwards. (laughs) What? And so when you go through an act of violence or if your loved one is missing, uh, you would think that everybody's yeah. going to come in and help you. And there's all these supports and programs and, you yeah. know, we're going to have the news and fires. And, yeah. yeah. And unfortunately it doesn't always work that way. And I think there's some misconceptions and myths and uh, other truths out there. And so with the work that I was doing with the provincial partnership is that we actually started meeting with the families and of course, we don't have the answers, but we need to understand what the challenges are, where the gaps are, mm-hmm. uh, maybe identify some areas that we can have some control and authority over. And so <clears throat> for missing persons, and this is all persons, not just MMIWG 2 plus S, but um, we implemented, um, for example, the 24-hour people think, oh, I can't report my person missing unless they've been missing for 24 hours. That is a myth. Mm -hmm. And so um, we we created like a a checklist for missing persons. I've also been on the police commission, which had a little bit of impact on the police act and um, um, some of the processes. And so through those governing bodies, through those uh, mechanisms, um, we could implement uh, some some changes, some process changes. From a community perspective, we created a we we actually um, buried messages from the family after a family gathering, and there is a tree that's wow. dedicated to missing persons right here in hmm. Regina. Really? At the Wascana Rehabilitation Center. A lot of people are not aware of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we also commissioned um, the Place of Reflection, which is just a part of the RCMP barracks. And that particular structure is very much like a sacred circle. Some people use medicine wheel teachings, Mm -hmm. um, but we use sacred circles. And then each of those grandfather rocks that are placed in there represent one murdered missing indigenous woman and girl. And so a lot of times there's things that are right there in our backyard that we're not aware of. And so that particular spot, um, that's where the Sisters in Spirit uh, vigils take place. Um, There's different events like uh, Red Dress, Mm -hmm. a national um, honoring. Uh, Just the other day, uh, February 14th, our our U.S. and um, other women um, were honoring and remembering murdered and missing Indigenous women in their communities. And so there's at least two or three national days that kind of bring up that awareness. Mm -hmm. Um, Locally, though, uh, in terms of supports, um, just as I said earlier, when the resources aren't out there, where are you going to go? So you go to your friends, you go to your family, um, and sometimes you're moved to 
try to do something. And what I mean by that is that anger, that uh, grief, that loss, whatever you're experiencing has moved some people to, to action. Uh, and that action is can be uh, memorial walks. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of honoring our brothers and sisters, memorial walks. There's lots of national walks to raise awareness. Um, we participated in a few and Rise Up Against Abuse actually did a national walk wow. to raise awareness. And it was really important to me to be able to do something physical mm-hmm. um, because we know the physical aspects of yeah. mental and emotional. So my grandmother used to walk in spirit, and I never understood what that meant until I walked across Alberta. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and every day you would start that day in a good way, um, and you opened yourself up to these amazing, beautiful experiences. But when you're walking in spirit, you're you're constantly praying. You're praying for yourself, for your children, for your generations that yet unborn, those that have passed, your ancestors. Like right. so, that's what it meant to me was walking in prayer. And um, but a lot of people don't understand is there's a lot of other ceremonies, and maybe we can talk about that later. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think. Yeah, Does that no. capture it all? Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think even as non-Indigenous people ourselves, it's so uh, enlightening and really educational for us to hear kind of other ways. I mean, again, learning about this this tree, I didn't know yeah. this existed. I would like to go visit it. Um, like all of these types of things of how we can also honor and, and celebrate lives. Um, and so I guess moving into our next question is from your perspective, how can non-Indigenous allies better support Indigenous-led uh, initiatives and efforts to combat violence against Indigenous women in Canada? Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> today's an example of that. Um, providing space for Indigenous women's voices to be heard, Mm -hmm. um, to be able to share your lived experience in a safe environment uh, is really important. Um, You know, reading the calls, not just the calls to action, but uh, the National Inquiry released um, their calls to justice. Mm -hmm. There's also probably a minimum of five national action plans that are out there. Um, addressing everything from being remote, no cell phone service, no internet, no computers. How do we, you know, help that individual? So being aware of what um, those resources are Mm -hmm. um, and implementing some of those plans of what we can do as individuals. So I'll go back to the Mama Way gathering And so we were looking for a host organization. And so the YWCA stepped up. Mm -hmm. And in that process, uh, um, I don't even think, they just do it naturally. (laughs) Um, In that process, what they did is they took on all the responsibility, like the financial responsibility. Uh, They left the planning uh, to the families Mm -hmm. and they stepped out of that they respected and honored those families enough to let them run the agenda and they coordinated all the volunteers coordinated all the spaces did all the registrations and just took all of that stuff away so that the families could just focus on what they needed to focus on uh, for those days they came into the planning meeting but not to run it Mm -hmm. not to take ownership of it and um, they started in pipe ceremony, and so they were willing to step out of maybe their comfort zone a little bit and say, you know what, this is the way that we do things. We start with crater, we start with tobacco, we start with offerings, we start with cloth, and then um, they just, you know, opened up the door, helped with the pathway, but then got out of the way. Yeah. Because they knew that it wasn't about them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes I've met individuals <laughs> that are, we're going to save save the people from themselves. Yeah. And, you know, I have the answers and I yeah. know what I need to do and we're going to take care. And that's part of the challenge of 
those systems yeah. is, you know, um, We've been we've been through this for 150 like plus years. Like that's colonialism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's exactly. Like, colonialism. Okay, you know what? <laughs> yeah, just provide the space. Provide like what you have provided here today for my comfort. You know, yeah. the coffee, the comfortableness, the safe safe environment. Uh, create those circles, um, and that's the hard part. Is is we already talked about the challenges mm -hmm. of when people are vulnerable, when they're going through abuse, when they're going through violence. And the challenge is, is that we can, we need to hear from them, but at the mm -hmm. same point, they don't need to create the space for them to, yeah. to be heard. And so when we see you guys are wonderful at this <laughs> people um, is when we see that, um, uh, that there's circles or systems uh, that we need to speak up, mm -hmm. that we need to point things out, that we need to be that voice. And um, what I've always said to my light-skinned brothers and sisters and our non-Indigenous family is that um, we might not be in the room if there's racism, if yeah. there's discrimination, mm -hmm. if there's, why do we have to do this? You know, you know, First Nations this or Métis that. That's where those ally voices yeah. need to rise. Yeah, yeah. Um, something that's very important for Skylar and I since we started Raise Her. So obviously the scariest is new, but Raise Her, as you are advisor for, is almost five years old. And um, our very first event, we had a very fantastic Indigenous woman come and share and be a part of a panel. And something that she said and has stuck with me since she's said it was that she walked into the space and looked around to see if it was safe for her and to see what and how it was how it felt um and she said that it felt safe which was just something that was really important for us to make sure that all of our spaces are safe and we outline that in like every event that we have and everything that we do is that safety is of the utmost importance and that we don't want to uh make people feel tokenized to share their hurt for our benefit um and so i think especially as non-indigenous you know, allies, as we hopefully are and call ourselves, um, that we can at least create spaces and hold space because we have the privilege and we have we have those spaces to hold space for people. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's and I guess even talking about like those people who are like, rah, rah, we're going to save it. That's such a that's a, so that's colonialism. And mm -hmm. like, we're going to come and save the people from themselves. Um, and so it can be really uncomfortable to be vulnerable and to like go into a pipe ceremony where I don't know what to do because that's not my culture, but to be willing to be vulnerable and learn and be taught and take in cultures and take in even just learning how to smudge. I, you know, I've been a part of a circle where we had to smudge and like people say they pass on it because they don't want to do it wrong. But I think that that's part of the learning is mm -hmm. to take in cultures and to be willing to, to be vulnerable. Totally. And I think it's just building that trust that we talked about, right? Rebuilding the trust yeah. um, from years and years and years of breaking that. And yeah. so what are the steps that we can take and what are the symbols that represent the starting of building that trust again? How mm -hmm. can we as non-Indigenous allies show that it is a safe space? And mm -hmm. I know we really are conscious of that and try to support other organizations in yeah. doing the same. So. Yeah. So thank you. So what are some of the cultural practices and Indigenous ways of knowing that you can share with us to raise awareness or educate on mitigating gender-based violence in Indigenous societies? Okay. Well, we already <laughs> kind of talked about... Right back in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we already kind of talked about that pipe ceremony. And yeah. so <clears throat> there's some beautiful teachings out there. And um, a lot of people don't understand how we have natural laws and spiritual laws and how those are all interconnected. Mm -hmm. And so as we go through our healing journey, um, it really starts with um, love. It starts with forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And there's these beautiful gifts that are out there. So some people call them the seven teachings. And so maybe you've heard them. Yeah. Um, and I remind people that it all starts within yourself first. So those it's love, respect, truth, honesty, humility, leading into wisdom and courage. Hmm. And so <clears throat> when we look at those gifts, um, when I was preparing for my very first traditional fast, 
um, my elder told me that I was going to be tested, uh, that those grandmothers were going to test me in terms of my decision, my confidence, my resolve, my dedication to my healing. And because our words are so important. Mm -hmm. And so when we offer that tobacco or we make that offering, we've made a commitment. And it's a commitment to ourselves. So we need to fulfill that commitment. And it can be daunting and it can seem hard. And so in that preparation, I experienced all of those teachings one way or another. And... I think one of the hardest ones for me was that humility. And so um, there's the teachings, there's the elders, there's the circles. You mentioned uh, some of the medicines like the smudge. And so Mm -hmm. um, there's sage, sweetgrass, um, tobacco, and uh, cedar. And so... once we start opening ourselves up to our traditional path, um, we know that Mother Earth provides everything that we need. Everything begins with creator. We start thinking in circles rather than in this A line Mm -hmm. and however things interconnected and how those spirits that are in everything um, are there to help us to guide us, uh, that we all have helpers, not just physical helpers. Um, And so we mentioned earlier in terms of receiving your spirit name. And so with that, the way that um, it was shared with me is that uh, Creator uh, gave us our names before we came into this natural world. And in that process, that's how Creator recognizes me. Um, And so when I was born, my parents would have named me Patricia. And through life, that's how I got my last name, Crow. But with that name, there's responsibilities. And so it's up to me to learn how to say my name in my language, uh, use it in prayer, use it um, uh, when I'm talking to Creator, when I'm making my requests, when I'm sitting with those good grandmothers and good grandfathers in Lodge. Um, And then I was very blessed to be able to sit with um, the late uh, Florence Allen. And Florence uh, was from the Medicine Lodge, uh, Medeo and Lodge. And she um, has a Grandmother Moon ceremony. And through the Grandmother Moon ceremony, we learn as women about our connections to that moon, to our cycles, uh, including our moon cycles. <laughs> and uh, we also can um, call out to those grandmothers. And it's a reminder through our songs, um, through our, our offerings, through our prayers, that um, we can call out to those grandmothers to help us when we need help. And in that process, it reminds us of our own sacredness. It reminds us that we are life givers and that we give life to everything. It's not just to our children, not just to our grandchildren. It's to our homes, to our relationships. And so as we open ourselves up to that traditional walk, uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. You know, we'll use the word healing. But in that process, you learn so much about yourself and you can stand in that sacredness. You can stand in that power. You can stand um, as who you are. Mm-hmm. And you bring that with you wherever you are, in your work, in your jobs, in your volunteerism. And then we teach that to our children, mm-hmm. to our, our our daughters. I have two daughters. I have five granddaughters. Wow. <laughs> That's a power and, squad. Yeah. yeah. And then... <laughs> We can't forget um, that gift of respect. And so when we sit in circles, um, sometimes like when you're in a feast circle and if you've ever been invited to feast, you'll see, um, and every territory is different, you'll see the men raising their pipes and the women are not in that circle. Hmm. And I can see you guys saying, what? (laughs) Why not? (laughs) However... 
uh, we have our own circles. Mm -hmm. And depending on how, what teachings that you have, the woman already has everything that she needs within herself that she, she doesn't need that help as much as the men do from those pipes mm. from so it's understanding that as we sit outside of that circle you 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 asked earlier about matriarchal yeah so we're still praying we're still praying to crater we're still praying to those good grandmothers those good grandfathers we're praying but also for our brothers our fathers that respect and that pipe represents that respect and so when you join that stem into that bowl together that's that's a sacred representation of of all kinds of things but yeah. respect is one of them so there's lots of traditional kind of things um some people use crosses we don't use crosses but some people like they have physical things that they hold mm. or and so we do also and so when we get our name um i was told to go and pick a grandfather rock and um that grandfather rock had led me on on many journeys and um so yeah so there's so much um but you know there's not one there's not just one way and there's not just, you know, the right way. There's many paths and many ways uh, to come to that place of healing and to come into those circles. It's uh, I've been fortunate to be um, around and even um, sort of involved in different ceremonies that we've, I've been invited to. Um, and one was a, a pipe ceremony um, and they had asked, uh, if the women were on their moon cycle to mm -hmm. uh, to not participate uh, mm -hmm. because of the just sheer amount of power that wow. she has for during her moon cycle, and I was like, no one has ever respected me on my period as much right? as, as and, and it, that just even you talking about the fact that like women sit outside because they already have everything that they need within them, mm -hmm. not as much as men. It just is this again this matriarchal look at society and like how mm -hmm. much power and strength women have within them um and and how strong we are especially when we're together and mm -hmm. and yeah so i love that but yeah it just that like that definitely made me feel a lot more valued um and opposed to you know being gross or being a burden or whatever it is because mm -hmm. i'm because i'm menstruating um so yeah that was yeah very interesting fascinating yeah so uh, as we kind of come near the end of our conversation, uh, how would you like to end this conversation and what hope can be offered for addressing and reducing violence against Indigenous women in Canada? Uh, the hope is that uh, you can break the cycle, mm -hmm. uh, that you can move to healing, that you can move to good things, that you can move to good health, uh, you can move to happiness and that um, in that education and in in that seeking of whatever you're looking for, um, that you need to just trust that when you make that commitment, and some people think it's really hard and they don't want to relive their trauma. Yeah. It took me a long time to be able to talk about my experiences without crying, without mm -hmm. feeling shame, without going through all of those um, all that sickness that I was carrying. And so the hope is, is that uh, you can get through it. And a reminder that uh, we don't have to relive it. We've already survived it. That's why we got the t-shirt. Yeah. And, um, and so um, learning ways of allowing things to flow through and grounding yourself, whether it be in mother earth, um, connecting to um, so much more things that are bigger than us um learning our teachings and so you know learning the grandfather teachings um there's so many good things out there and um believe in yourself uh, knowing that as i said that you can be the change mm -hmm. that it can start with you um and then as we do that work um internally that we can now share that with our family with our community in our homes, in our spaces, and you carry it wherever you go. 
and so I think that's the message I have is don't give up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, if I can do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> I, I absolutely, I mean, I, I don't, we don't know you that well, but I, I absolutely believe that. Um, and something that we actually learned in our uh, human trafficking episode that we covered, was that, um, that, you don't stop and you you keep continuing on the conversation you keep supporting people as whether they are you know as you said you feel like you're you've healed and you are still healing from it but it's it's don't don't stop that and continue on supporting people and and yeah mm-hmm. keep sharing love well i know you guys like statistics we i love have, statistics I know, but i don't have a statistic for you <laughs> but i do have um when we talked about rise up against abuse mm-hmm. we said that we can't change the statistic so yeah. In my lifetime, I will always be um, a woman who has been sexually assaulted or has went through sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. So that statistic won't change for for my for myself. However, how can we break this so that it changes for the next generation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when we talk about some of these uh, cultural ways of thinking, um, you may have heard a lot of individuals talk about it takes seven generations mm-hmm. to heal. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm generation five and so my daughter's is generation six and my grandchildren are generation seven and there were five generations of women who went through abuse um and so realizing that that gives you such hope yeah yes. <laughs> that it's like okay you can see I, it i can't change my statistic but what can i do to change that for my children and mm-hmm. from for my granddaughters yeah and so that's a big motivator for me and it was also a big motivator to make the commitment to my healing journey if i couldn't do it for myself I love them enough that I could do it for them. Of course. Oh, God. That's like mother's strength. Absolutely. That's wow. great. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. We really appreciate you sharing and uh, and contributing to continuing moving the needle forward and shifting these scary stats. So thank you, Patricia. Thank you so much. Thank you. So as Patricia courageously shared her deeply personal story of abuse, her words served as an important reminder of the pervasive violence experienced by Indigenous women every day in Canada. Mm-hmm. Her resilience and strength in the face of adversity most definitely highlighted the urgent need for action to address the systematic issue. Yeah, definitely. Moving forward, it's definitely essential for listeners to translate empathy into meaningful steps that contribute to change. Totally. That's that physical action she was mm-hmm. talking about. So in May 2023, the House of Commons adopted a motion on a unanimous consent calling on the federal government to declare ongoing violence against Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit people as a national emergency. It also calls on the government to provide an immediate and substantial investment to create public alert systems uh, for missing Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, called the red dress alert um but it's not in effect yet but it's something like the the amber alert for kids um another thing though that uh even just with speaking to patricia reminded me of the chief red bear law children's lodge that's at kawasas first nations and like thinking about the stat that you had said of that eight and ten women who are in like who grow up in government housing or like within the government's custody um, end up facing violent victimization. This chief red bear children's lodge focuses on keeping children like within the community Mm -hmm. and not sending them off to foster care systems that are outside of like what their traditional growing up ways of knowing and being are. So I think that's so important in terms of like keeping that close to home and the village uh, that you need to get through it, which which Patricia definitely relied on herself. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess the question is then what can we do at a grassroots level and personal level? Here are some of the actionable strategies inspired by Patricia's story and the broader movement for justice and healing in Indigenous communities. So one of the most important things that we can do as a society is to educate ourselves on the truths of our past and the impacts of colonialism. Take time to learn about the historical and ongoing injustices faced by Indigenous peoples in Canada, specifically violence against Indigenous women. 
Next is to listen and amplify Indigenous voices. Again, as Patricia had stated, actively seek out and listen to the perspectives and experiences of Indigenous women and communities. Attend Indigenous-led events, engage with Indigenous media outlets, and follow Indigenous activists and organizations to, on social media to understand their priorities and their needs. In addition to that, we need to challenge stereotypes and discrimination. Like Patricia said, when we're in those areas with non-Indigenous people present, that is your chance to stand up, say something, and challenge yeah. those stereotypes and those biases, especially when we even looking inwards in your own biases. Yeah. One of the best things we can do is speak out against stereotypes, address biases, fight discrimination that per perpetuate violence against Indigenous women, and challenge those harmful narratives in your personal interactions, workplaces, communities, everywhere you go. Yeah. On top of that, we can support initiatives focusing on healing, reconciliation, and trauma-informed care for Indigenous women who've experienced violence. Encourage the development of culturally appropriate services and programs that prioritize Indigenous ways of knowing and healing. Like Patricia said, so many have gone away. We need to think about bringing those back. What can we do to support them? Yeah. How can we encourage and try um, to be part of those cultural healing processes, like she said, mm -hmm. that are so unique and so fascinating, um, you know? be a part of that to support the healing. Yeah. And finally, continuously reflecting and learning, reflecting on your own biases, your own privileges and your actions and commitment to ongoing lear learning and growth. Stay informed about current issues and engage in critical conversations with others to promote meaningful change. This is going around. This is happening in Canada and even more, I think in Saskatchewan, some of the highest rates of this. So this is happening to us and our our civilians members. and our people yeah. every single day. So you need to be informed and aware of your privilege and whether or not it's happening to you, it's happening to somebody, mm -hmm. your neighbor. So, yeah, exactly. So by taking a few or all of these actions, we can contribute to creating a more just and equitable society where indigenous women are safe, respected and empowered. So with that, we want to thank you so much for joining us today mm -hmm. as we confronted these terrifying as always, but real life statistics impacting women and girls. Please share this episode, rate and subscribe wherever you are listening. And stay tuned for more ways to make a positive impact. Together, we can make the world a little less scary for it to exist as a woman. Remember, as always, to follow us on Instagram at RaiseHerCo and at Scaries.podcast and on TikTok at RaiseHerCo. Remember, change starts with awareness and action, which we are doing here today. Thank you for being a part of the Scaries community and making this world a little less scary to exist as a woman. Bye. Bye.